A crack in the mountains unleashed a fairy troublemaker. But don't worry, because Sisu and the Master Gardener are going to help us hunt a little mermaid. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven day guide to everything movies. Boom. Hello and welcome back to the show. Loads of new movies to talk about this week that Van Connor has already seen and I haven't. But there is an exception this week. The last movie <laughs> we're going to be talking about, I have seen. I'm not going to say anything about that yet. We're going to start with Master Gardener. Um, we were having a little chat about this earlier. You know, as far as the synopsis goes, this looks really good. It's got Sigourney Weaver in and it sounds fun. Well, I mean, it sounds fun. It, it, I mean, it's worth noting, first and foremost, this is a movie written and directed by Paul Schrader. And I, I'm not sure if I said this to you last week. Um, be it good or bad, it's never an uninteresting week when there is a new Paul Schrader movie. Yeah. Uh, Paul, Schrader, Paul Schrader generally is, is a writer rather than a director. Um, he has had some forays into directing. And uh, they, they, they've, they've not generally been great, if we're being honest. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, this, is, this is part of a step up for him. He, his, his last few have actually been a bit of a marked improvement. This uh, pro, this stars in the lead, Joel Edgerton. Uh, he stars opposite uh, Sigourney Weaver and Contessa Swindell. Uh, Sigourney Weaver, we're all familiar with. Contessa Swindell uh, most recently was seen in Black Adam, I believe. She was one of the, 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 the Justice Society heroes in, in Black Adam. Um, here you've got, I've got to look up the name because it's a brilliant name. Joel Edgerton plays Narvel Roth. A brilliant wow. Marvel, Marvel with an N. Novel, Novel Roth, who is a horticulturalist, who um, he he works for. I'm trying to remember what the term is for a widower who owns, who has inherited a plot of land, and that's who Sigourney Weaver plays. She's the the, the sort of rich widow who owns a, a you know a, a stately sort of manor on which Narvel Roth is the the horticulturalist slash gardener. Uh, Sigourney Weaver's landowner takes him aside one day and says, uh, I have a, a, a great niece who's a bit troublesome. She's coming to live with me. I'm going to take her under my wing. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have her live here. She's going to live in the shed outside, out back. I want you to train her in the horticultural arts. Take her under your wing and, and teach her this. This should get her on the straight and narrow. However, it turns out that good old Narvel has something of a bit of a checkered past. And the arrival of Sigourney's grandniece or great-niece, I think great-niece, uh, starts to bring the dark secrets of this past right to the surface as he starts to become more and more protective of his new young charge. As it turns out, she has a boyfriend who, from the projects who's something of a dealer, something of a troublemaker, and he sets out to protect her. I've got a clip for you, and this is Narvel threatening said troublemaking boyfriend. You must be Farmer John. <laughs> I'm a gardener. That's why I wear these funny clothes. And yeah, carry these pruning shears. It's part of my job. You know, pruning shears, they can snap off a branch or a plant bulb, just like that. Same time it takes to snap off a finger or some testicles. Hey, sissy, think twice before you move. Done a lot of pruning. RG, you got a visit from the police. I'm a second warning. Yeah, see, I watched the trailer to this, and there's, um, how can I put it, a lot more action in there than you would expect from the synopsis, from what I saw. 
No, that's the thing. I mean, the trailer and uh, and that clip and just the general marketing for this, I think, sell um, a dark... Uh, well, not a darker, actually, because it is quite a dark drama. I think they sell uh, a more suspenseful film than what you're getting. This is a lot more nuanced. And if you look at Schrader's recent body of work, for instance, it, it does kind of fit with the times. Um, Schrader, I'm not sure, did he direct First Reformed? I'm trying to remember here. Um... He wrote The Card Counter, he wrote First Reform, I'm trying to remember here, I think I'm just literally pulling this up, writer, 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 uh, sorry, he's, uh, he directed The Card Counter recently, and First Reformed, of course, but before that, Dog Eat Dog, with Willem Dafoe and Nicolas Cage, which was a really acquired taste, now the last two, obviously, The Card Counter and First Reformed, were closer to this, this does seem to be something of a renaissance for Paul Schrader, but however, Whilst all the other critics were going along this week being like, oh, Paul Schrader, the director of First Reform, I couldn't help but be yes, but he was also the director of The Canyons, the best forgotten 2013 erotic drama starring Lindsay Lohan and ex-porn star James Dean, which is one of the worst movies of the 2010s. He also directed, Ex was it Dominion, the prequel to The Exorcist? One of the most troubled movies of the 2000s, a movie they had to literally make twice. There's two different versions versions of it in existence under two different titles. Uh, he is, I say, better off as a writer, and that goes back to the 70s, because this guy was a writer for Scorsese. He wrote Taxi Driver. You know, movies like that. He wrote yeah. really iconic movies. As a director, though, his efforts have been somewhat lackluster until the most recent two, until First Reformed and The Card Counter. And this is very much in the same vein as those movies. It is uh, very much, I think there's, a, there's an interview with him this, this past week in which uh, he talks about how he uh, would direct Joel Edgerton as an actor and how he said, you need to imagine that you are the rocks on the shore. You as the actor are just, you are the rocks on the shore. And the story and the dialogue and the events are the waves that crash against you. And that is actually an incredible way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you can kind of see that philosophy and that ideology running through this. It's, as I say, a very, very nuanced film about the ticks, about the about just the little quirks of the character. It's not a movie about dialogue. It's not, and even though, for instance, it has a sex scene in that is not in any way erotic, but is quite powerful. It's a very powerful sequence, but has no titillation or eroticism to it, despite the fact that there's quite ample nudity, for instance. And that is, a, I mean, you could make the argument that having directed The Canyons with Lindsay Lohan and ex-porn star James Dean, that he's probably well-versed in having done that by now, which, oh my God, you've got to see that movie. It's an absolute travesty. Um, <laughs> and, and Lindsay Lohan was really, really going for it in that one. Um, Contessa Swindell, I think, shows a very different side of herself here. I know that Joel Edgerton is great all across the board. Like, even in truly terrible movies, Joel Edgerton is always great. However... My MVP on this one, and I gotta give it. And, and again, you, you know, you expect this of her. It's Sigourney, who just shows up to play here in full Joan Crawford mode. This is full old school Joan Crawford right here, like proper. I've I've sunk four mint julepers before I showed up to set. I'm ready to have some fun, and she's really going for it. She she just wants to smash glasses against the scenery and slap some people. She's really going for it. just this simmering rage that is just permanently under the surface. But at the same time, it's Sigourney, so she doesn't really let on with it. 
You know what I mean? It, it's one of it's a really great balanced performance, and it is all about the subtextual. That direction about being the rocks and having everything crash be the wave that crashes against you, absolutely works here. And you could say you can see it with Edgerton, but you can most definitely and most certainly see it with Sigourney Weaver. The movie is worth seeing purely for Sigourney Weaver more than anything else. But it, it's great outside of that. Um, I will say a couple of the other interesting cast members in there. Isai Morales, um, who incidentally is going to be the villain of uh, the upcoming, uh, I think, seventh Mission Impossible movie. Um, oh, okay. Best, best known as uh, the Elder Adama in Caprica, if you're a sci-fi TV fan. Uh, and also Rick Cosnett from The Flash, Eddie Thorne from The Flash, which ended this week. The, the TV uh, series of The Flash ended this week after nine years, and he played uh, Eddie Thorne. Uh, and did, did ancestor of the reverse flash if you know that mythology but oh, you know always an interesting performer a bit of a pretty boy who actually has some 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 real depth to him some surprising depth under the uh, the melrose place level of good looks that he's uh, he's rocking at any given time um this i say is definitely in keeping with the card counter and first reformed if you're a fan of those two i, I you'd be a fool to miss this if you're still on the fence about schrader based on his inarguably crappier past body of work I would say definitely give this a look and I think this could turn you around but it is quite a stirring suspenseful drama in terms of what the mystery of Narvel's past really is it's not much of a revelation it, it, it's not they don't really manage to keep it under the hat that well it's it's not really that kind of a movie but great performances. Uh, I think the script is quite tight. I think the direction is really inventive. And I think it it has a way of capturing its environment, a way of balancing the glamour of, you know, the gardens and things like that with effectively the projects, with the slummier elements of, of, of you know, the, the small American town, for instance, that I think works gangbusters. I say it's called uh, Master Gardener. It's in cinemas on general release, pretty wide release actually from today. And I say never a dull week when there's a new Paul Schrader movie. Well, there you go. You can go and make your own mind up if you want to uh, go watch it in the cinema, which, as Van says, out from today. Um, right, we're moving on. We've got two to talk about in the next block. We are going to talk about The Fairy Troublemaker and A Crack in the Mountain. We'll see what Van thought of those two in just a second. Hello and welcome back to the show. Okay, two more movies to chat about with Van Connor, which are both out in cinemas from today. Uh, the Fairy Troublemaker in a second. Let's start with A Crack in the Mountain. So this is not just another wonder of the world kind of documentary, is it? Actually, it is and it isn't. So it's about a natural wonder of the world, the Hang Sang Dong Caves in Vietnam, um, which if you're not aware of them, are this uh, this this natural formation? Um, you, obviously, uh, cave. You're aware of caving as a, as yeah. a hobby. I presume, yeah, yeah. Right? My, my my best friend's dad uh, is re- was really really into caving. Doesn't for, you know, for health reasons can't do it anymore. He's if I wasn't shaped like a wedge, I would get yeah. into caving. I, it's, well, it really turns you know. Well, it's funnily enough, Han Sang Dong's got you covered. It's got oh. you. Because you can walk into this cave. You can literally walk into this cave because the entrances to it are 450 feet across and 600 feet high. The actual passage through these caves is larger than most cathedrals, as we are told. And 
the the local governments only allow a certain number of tourists per year. I think it's something like a thousand tourists a year or something like that that they actually allow it. So you have to apply. And with the increased popularity of this case, this has had a knock-on effect with the local region. There has been an obvious increase and influx in tourists. This has had a knock-on effect with the local economy. It has boosted local businesses. It has brought in outside funding and outside businesses and things like that. And it has forced them to look at what they will and won't allow to actually be added to their general way of life in the local area. So they look at comparable um, local sort of, you know, tourist traps and how they've had to install cable cars above national forests and things like that. And they had to ask, how far are they willing to go to accommodate this natural advancement of the tourism trade before they start to lose their own way of life? And what effect will this have on, for instance, their environment. You know, you look at, for instance, the, the, the amount of local waste that will, you know, the, the increase in local waste that will be produced and things like that. But at the same time, how does that compare with how much better off economically they will be in the local area and things like that? It is actually really fascinating. I started watching this literally today. And within about, well, I mean, I, within the first two minutes, I thought, oh, good Lord, I'm going to be in for a long afternoon, aren't I? But very, very quickly, once they get to the crux of that argument and you start to look at that delicate equilibrium and, again, balance, and you start to look at you know, the butterfly effect of it all, you start to really find what's compelling about this. I was genuinely fascinated by this. And, of course, absolutely breathtaking scenery because this is an area that... It's not untouched by man, obviously. It's, it's you know, it's like a thousand tourists a year, for instance. Um... But it, this is still something that is relatively unspoiled. And seeing it captured in the way that it is, absolutely stunning. And I actually spoke to a Vietnamese friend of mine earlier today. I actually sent her uh, the, the, a, poster, a poster for the trailer and the description and, and said, I, I, I saw this. You, you've got to see this documentary. You're fascinated. She said, I have heard of this. And I have seen footage of it. I've always been intrigued. I'll check this out. Um, so I'm going to be really interested to see what she comes back with on that but uh, I had recently been looking there is a I don't know if you know this there is a train journey you can get from Portugal to Vietnam no it's a 10,000 mile train journey you can Whoa. get it takes about two weeks and it's it's kind of my dream holiday would be taking this train journey you go all the way through Europe and you go through Moscow as long as you had Wi-Fi well, you don't for certain chunks. I know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I wonder, could I get press screens? But no, this is genuinely fast. It's written and directed by Alistair Evans. And they do talk to a lot of Western tourists, for instance, who have made the trip. And they, they ask, for instance, like when you've talked about these caves, like how many people do you know who've like heard of them? And they, they say, oh, 95% of people I have talked to about do not know it exists. And the 5% that do will tell you this is absolutely breathtaking. I'm jealous as hell. You've got to go. And you can absolutely see why, but it is in that discussion, it is that argument about, as I say, the equilibrium that you will you'll be absolutely taken away. It's got by. murmurs of like the beach in there somewhere, with it being this unspoiled, idealistic yeah. kind of. But at the same time, yeah. it, in my from what you've said, I feel like they're on a knife edge. Do they go full Vegas or do they go, you know, Land's End? And they're kind of in the middle at the moment, making a decision on what do we do with this, you know, this area. Yeah, that's it. And in the middle of it all, you've got this. You know, this is the largest cave in the world. I think it's four and a half miles uh, straight through this cave. Wow. About four and a half miles across. And I'll be, I'd be, I would be genuinely fascinated to to, to go myself now. It's, it's like I didn't know this this place existed yesterday, and now it's just 
I'm expect a movie to be set here in the next two years. Like folding money now says a Hollywood movie will be the next oh. Mission Impossible will go. <laughs> I was going to say nine. It's going to be the next Jurassic Park, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that would be a more inventive sequel than the last few we've had. But just say, just this, just seeing the difference that the increase in tourism has made to just this this small, impoverished Vietnamese community. Yeah, it's I'd say just absolutely compelling. If you check this out, if especially if you're if you are you know environmentalist. Absolutely worth watching. In fact, I've just realised there's another friend of mine I really need to recommend this to. He's going to be absolutely taken away by it. So, uh, yeah, for the, for the environmentalist in your life, this is unmissable stuff. But if you, if you know, if you just, you know, if you're a student of the care of planet Earth, you, you owe it to yourself to check this out. It's called Crack in the Mountain. It's on limited release, I think, and on digital from today. Right. Let's move on to the fairy troublemaker. Is it just another Toy Story, Ben? <laughs> Well, funnily enough, right, so this is a sort of a cheapy animated film. I, I'm thinking it might be French, or French or Spanish. It is a European-made animated film in that style of, you know, like the cheapy animated ones that we get. You know the ones that I usually describe as sub-DreamWorks? Yeah. Like, not up, not up to, definitely not, because, you know, on the animation scale, you've got DreamWorks and Pixar, you've got... Pixar at the top, you've got DreamWorks down below and then Illumi- DreamWorks and Illumination and then you've got your sort of European ones and you get your gems occasionally like Fly Me to the Moon and uh, things like Epic Tales I would argue is an above average one. Uh, th- this would rank below that I would say. But weirdly, the film it's closest to in plot would probably be Dwayne Johnson's The Tooth Fairy from 2009, <laughs> if you remember. You remember when Dwayne Johnson was still trying to figure out how to be a movie star and he made a load of family movies with white posters where he le- where he was doing leaning? Yeah. That thing where he did leaning, the leaning posters on a white The man in black lean. Yeah, he did a load of those. And one of them was The Tooth Fairy, was the hockey player who became a tooth fairy. This is nowhere near as witty or as inventive as, uh, as The Tooth Fairy, it's worth noting. And it follows... Um, a tooth fairy named, I think she's named Violetta or Violetta, who becomes trapped in the human world by accident. And in order to find her way back, has to team up with a 12-year-old girl who, you know, obviously has out- lost all her own teeth at this stage, has outgrown the tooth fairy myth, and has to aid our tooth fairy to get, but she has to actually get a hold of a tooth in order to go back. And they have to literally, you know, get it from the younger brother. They have to get the younger the tooth out of the younger brother to get back. Um, it's the kind of film that skews very young. So uh, Albert, for instance, your son, could watch this very comfortably. And you wouldn't necessarily be dead set against it. You wouldn't hate it or anything like that, but you you probably have a nap, if I'm honest. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's about the level of... You know when you've got a kid's iPad game and they have the animated cutscenes? Oh, oh yeah. Standard. About that level, I would say. Yeah. It's, it's Like I say, it's not up to DreamWorks or Illumination level. And I'm being quite disparaging about Illumination considering they just put out you know, the Mario Brothers movie and that is one of the highest grossing movies of this year so far. So I need to, I probably need to rank Illumination a bit higher because that movie did look good. Like You've got to give that to Mario. It looks good. Um... This did not quite work for me. I mean, there's a, a sequence that had me in absolute hysterics in which the Tooth Fairy is literally trying to rip a tooth out of a child's mouth as they're asleep. You're like, no, those those teeth are fixed, honey. I, I'd leave them there. But she's still really going for you. Like, this is this is absolutely just morbid as hell. I love it. Um, that, that moment kind of made me chuckle. Also, I, I'm not sure. I have, to say, I have to look up the country of origin on this because they seem to have a very weird tradition about what it is that Tooth Fairies 
do. Right, Luxembourg, German and Lux, uh, German uh, right. and Luxembourgian. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, two fairies in whatever culture this originally descends from uh, seem to replace teeth with toys rather than money. Like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm aware that you know we and the Americans. I can tell you firsthand, you know, all rely on we, we trade teeth for money. That that's how we do this. But uh, no, apparently it's it's toys. They literally make toys like they're Will Ferrell and Elf. Money um, is much easier to slide under a pillow when they're asleep for a start. Is, yeah, <laughs> it, it, def- it definitely is. Uh, so that's that's called uh, My Fairy Troublemaker. It is a PG. It is eighty-five minutes, so it's kind of about the right length. I mean, about eighty minutes with credits. Um, kind of movie you say so you would whack on if you know you wanted to distract Albert for an hour and twenty minutes and have a bit of a kip on the couch. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's it's one of those. I don't think personally that you would you'd, you'd sink money into taking him to the pictures to see this. Like, definitely not one of those. No, 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 no. I mean, he's yeah. four, so you know, it, I'm not even sure his, his attention would be held for more than half an hour. If I'm quite honest with you, but it's bright and colourful, you know, <laughs> I'd give it a go, uh, and you can give it a go because if you want to uh, want to watch it, it is in cinemas from today. Um, right. We've got two movies left to talk about. Sisu, which we will end with, which myself and Van have watched. I managed to get a screening on this, uh, thanks to Van. But next, The Little Mermaid. We will see what Van which I got, of. Which I got a screening on, thanks to you. So yeah, we'll that's true, that actually. One, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Well, we'll see what Van thought about it in just a minute. Stay there. Hello and welcome back to the show. Two movies left to talk about that are out this week. Uh, Cecil in a moment. Right now, Van Connor has seen The Little Mermaid. What was she like? I have gone under the sea for you, sir, and seen The Little Mermaid. And uh, I I found her wanting, if I'm honest. But (laughs) we'll get to that. Okay, so live action adaptation. Latest in the increasingly long line of Disney live action adaptations that my four-year-old nephew thinks are the greatest thing ever. Makes complete sense because when he was about six months old, we took him to his very first uh, multimedia premiere and it was Dumbo. It was Tim Burton's Dumbo a few years ago. So this is literally baked into him uh, from, you know, six months old. He now watches all of these movies over and over. And I, I, I imagine he'll add this to the repertoire because... In short, however you feel about Beauty and the Beast is how you're going to feel about this film. And he loves the look of Beauty and the Beast. So this one comes to us from director Rob Marshall, who directed Chicago, directed, I think it was uh, the fourth of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies uh, on Stranger Tides, and directed Into the Woods uh, for Disney as well. And the basic premise, if you've been living under a rock for 30-odd years, and 34 years, I think it is, since the original animated iteration. If you've been living under a rock for 30 years, the plot of The Little Mermaid goes as follows. Ariel, the wayward daughter of the Ocean King Trident, really, really has a fascination with the human world. She has been arbitrarily banned from, you know, the surface world by Daddy and one day, you know, breaks the rules, uh, comes across uh, Prince Eric of the of the surface world, falls in love with him, and as a result, makes a deal with the sea witch Ursula, whose backstory was ambiguous in the animated version, but he's less so here, and I will get to that, um, in order to basically trade her mermaid status for human legs in exchange for her voice. She has to give up her voice, effectively. So she goes into the human world with legs... 
but without the ability to speak or sing. And the only way she gets to stay there and get her voice back is if she gets true love's first kiss out of our dear prince within three days. And the only aid she has in this quest is via her sea creature friends, Sebastian the Crab, Scuttlebutt the Seagull, and Flounder the Fish, um, in, in order to do this. But of course, <laughs> Ursula and her, I think they're eels, Ursula and her eel uh, sidekicks, Flotsam and Jetsam, who are literally not even named in this version, are uh, determined to throw a monkey in the works because they not only want uh, not only want Ariel to fail, they want they have designs on King Triton's uh, you know uh, hut, uh, what do you call it his trident and status as as ruler of the oceans. I've got a clip for you. This is Sebastian the Crab, voiced by David Diggs in this iteration, noticeably from Hamilton. We will get to that. And Scuttlebutt the Seagull, voiced by Aquafina. Ah! Get off me, you fool! Oh, hey! Didn't expect to find you here. And I really didn't expect to find her here. Uh, uh, hey, you listen to me, bird. The king can never hear of this. We are going to forget this ever happened. Ow! Are you listening to me? Yes. Uh... You won't tell him. I won't tell him. And I will stay in one piece. You got it? Got it. Sorry, what'd you say again? I am a dead crab. This is, from what you've said, this is basically a, a love child but of, of Cinderella and Splash. Effectively, yeah. Now, <laughs> it's worth noting, <clears throat> the original uh, Little Mermaid from 1989, I keep saying the original, obviously, you know, the original Disney iteration of The Little Mermaid, yeah. there's, always been, there's always been versions of The Little Mermaid, and of course it's based on, is it a 16th century book by uh, Hans Christian Andersen? Um, 17th century? I'm not actually sure when he wrote The Little Mermaid. Um, that book, you know, has, has been around for, for centuries. Literally, so there's been many, many versions of The Little Mermaid. This is obviously remaking the Disney version. That Disney version in 1989 was like 80-something minutes long, about 85 minutes long, we'll say, for argument's sake. This is two and a quarter hours. So there is a lot of extra time here. Now, most of that time has been dedicated to fleshing out and rounding out the character of Prince Eric, who noticeably in the animated version wasn't a character at all, in much the same way that Prince Charming wasn't in Cinderella. Now, Ken Branagh's Cinderella, which was 2015, 2016 thereabouts, the Ken Branagh version, did a pretty good job of fleshing out uh, Prince Charming, as played in that iteration by uh, Richard Madden from Game of Thrones. Here, you've got uh, the same kind of thing being attempted. Now, he's been playing, he's, he's played here by uh, Jonah Howard King. Not an actor I'm overly familiar with, but not a bad actor at all. He does a fairly good job. And the depth of writing that they afford him, I will say, does succeed in making Eric a character. However, everything else that they have crammed into this extra runtime, every extra bit of story that they have tried to put in there, feels very, I mean, it's an attempt to be progressive. Now, I want to be very clear off the bat that when I'm making these complaints, I am in no way whatsoever talking in any way about the ethnicity of the actress playing Ariel. Because Halle Bailey, who plays Ariel, who is an African-American actress, is the best thing about this movie. Hands down, absolutely the best thing about this movie. Everything else they've done to try and make it a bit more inclusive, diverse, and uh, you know, and, and a, you know, a bit more with the times, feels patronising to the point of just whacking people about the head with a sledgehammer. 
And that that I and I am including in that the shifting of location from what was clearly meant to be Europe in the animated version, like it was clearly meant to be like Denmark that the uh, that they were they were in, to the Caribbean in this one. And there's there's a lot of that. And this goes up to and including a new element. Like I say, they've expanded the character of Prince Eric. He's now an adopted prince by a black queen, which is not something that was in the original. Now, things I really love about this. Halle Bailey, number one with a bullet. She's brilliant. Her cover of Part of Your World, genuinely tear-jerking. I honestly, I was just tears streaming. She broke me. What a performance. Absolutely beautiful. Genuinely. However, beyond that, oh, and, and Melissa McCarthy's Poor Unfortunate Souls. I, I thought that worked as well. That, that that works quite as well. Um Ursula, as played by Melissa McCarthy. Fine, but a bit lazy. A little bit. I would have gone a bit more inventive with it. For one thing, I would have hired an actual drag queen. Like, I would have, you know, if I were Disney, I would have sacked up a bit and actually gone and got... Because the original... I don't know if you know this, but the original animated uh, Ursula was based on Divine. Was based on the the drag artist Divine. Oh, I didn't know that, no. Yeah, staple of many a John Waters movie. Uh, Incidentally, Ariel in the uh, 1989 version was based on 1989 uh, uh, Alyssa Milano. Very famously, who, you know, otherwise known, you know, to this day as literally the perfect human. Anyway, right, there's also a gag in 30 Rock in which John Hamm claims to have been the basis of, of Prince Eric, which actually would make a great degree of sense. After the good points, though, there's, there's a lot of that, and I do mean a lot of that. The sea creature, you know, the sidekick friends, Sebastian's, uh, Sebastian and Flounder in particular, attempting to make them realistic, photorealistic, leads you into an area, a problematic area we had with Beauty and the Beast, where they simply start to become ugly. They become quite visually repellent. In this case, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2014 live-action repellent. Like, that level of hideous. That level of absolutely ugh. Like, I'll be honest, if they came up to me in a dark alley, I'd run. Like... I mean, Flounder, I don't know why, and the amount of money they had to have spent on animating Flounder when, you know, you, do you know those fish that you, you see mounted on walls with a button and you press it and the fish sinks? <laughs> yes. Like, I feel like you could have just ripped one of those off the wall and it would have looked better. Like, really, it would have actually looked better than, I mean, first of all, Flounder is a non-character here because there's no expansion to that writing. Uh, same with Triton, actually. And as a result, Javier Bardem just seems bored. Like, he's visibly phoning it in. He's showing up dressed as Daddy Aquaman, just phoning it in. Just, oh, Ariel, I love you. You are my daughter. Ugh. You know, all the way through, he's like, dude, if you can't be bothered with this, how the hell are we supposed to be? Um, <laughs> now... Regarding that soundtrack, uh, yeah, some of these covers are awful. And when I say awful, I mean as bad as some of the ones in The Lion King. Do you remember how awful some of the the, the covers were in the, the live-action oh, Lion King one? Yes. Yeah. Like, Which ones the, did they do in here, then, that were bad? I mean, in particular, uh, Und- Under the Sea, I think it was in particularly really, really... They ruined Under the Sea? They ruined Under the Sea. Can oh, you believe ruining oh, Under the Sea? Sacrilege. Uh, Kiss the girl as well. Oh, wow. no. Kiss the girl. Right. And then we get to 
the cherry on top, because all of this has been arranged by Lin-Manuel Miranda, currently the go-to artist in resident for all of this over at Disney, because he seems to be just the guy that's on speed dial over there, and he's added two new songs to this, one of which he's done in the only tone he seems to know, which is, let's just do a Hamilton bit. So he gets Sebastian and Scuttlebutt to do a new number in that rapping style of Hamilton. And you're just like, oh. no, dude, come on. <laughs> Take a day off. They're paying you money. Make effort. Come on. It's a bit lazy. And, yeah, and then you get to the visuals of it. And right, so the water stuff, everything underwater. Now, first of all, obviously, doing this six months after Avatar The Way of Water you're fighting an uphill battle anyway because the underwater stuff has peaked now. Like, James Cameron peaked this. You know, James Cameron, a director so damn good that I literally wear his name around my neck. Okay? James Cameron perfected underwater. James Cameron, I guarantee you, is watching this film and absolutely peeing himself laughing. Completely. I guarantee he is. Right. This doesn't look as good as Aquaman. It doesn't look as good as 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 Wakanda Forever. It, it, it it's it, like I say, it, it's too dark to be fun, and it's 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 too fun to be take, and it's too silly to be real. If you know what I mean, it, it's yeah. kind of that way. And then you get to the third act when they do the whole kaiju climax, which if you remember that there is the, the sort of bit with massive Ursula towards the end, and you can't see it. You check, and I watched this on an iMac, laser projected on an iMac screen, which, you know, 90% of its audience aren't going to do. And I couldn't make out what was going on. It's just grayed out. It's grayed out, blurred thing. And I'm sat there thinking, we saw more of Godzilla in 2014 than I am seeing right now in this movie. I guarantee wow. you. And then you get to all the bits that they've tweaked and changed. I mean, one of them does involve how Ursula is finally taken out, for instance, and you're forced to finally ask some serious logic questions. Right. And then I'm going to add my ultimate piece de resistance to this absolute cluster F, which is, right, we have 11 Fast and Furious movies in existence, which proves conclusively, once and for all, and it's the argument I'm going to use forever, that audiences will accept anything if they're having enough fun okay they shot a car into space we swallowed it because we were having fun disney don't agree with that disney need everything to make sense or they seem to and much like beauty and the beast they have tacked on this ridiculous memory spell element to this version of the story oh. that was not there in the animated version. I have a younger sister. Trust me, I have seen The Little Mermaid more times than I've had hot dinners. I can quote The Little Mermaid, and I know that because I could quote along to most of this version of The Little Mermaid because most of the dialogue hasn't really changed, uh, save for you know all of the Eric stuff and a weirdly tacked-on bit about how Ursula and Triton are now siblings. They're now actually siblings who've had a rivalry. He kicked her out, and that's why. Yeah, because in the animated version, it's sort of implied that she's a spurned lover. But now there's this weird memory spell thing, same as there was in Beauty and the Beast, and that's there to paper over all the logic holes. And you start thinking, dude, in the next screen in this multiplex is a franchise that shot a car into space. Get with the program. That being said, this is also the same movie that at one point forgets that birds can't breathe underwater and has a seagull literally fly underwater and have a five-minute conversation and eat during. 
Oh also, also then, also then, therefore, inadvertently asking the question that we also asked in Beauty and the Beast, which is, okay, if you're okay smashing some cutlery, how do you know which ones are alive and which ones are dead? You know, like weird kind of question that you you ask. You know, like in this question, like how why is it okay to eat certain fish but certain ones are friends? You know, again, it's it's a strange thing. They kind of want to have their cake and eat it. They want everything to make sense, but then they chuck on enough of these weird little elements that don't. In a movie that you can barely see, that feels quite patronizing, that the kids are going to maybe find a bit too dark, and the parents are going to find frankly insulting. Like, because presumably they've grown up loving the original because they were human beings in 1989. And therefore, what you wind up with is a film that barely scrapes by three stars and doesn't really seem to be for anyone, but does make a pretty great calling card for Halle Bailey. So, yeah, make of that what you will. You can go and make your own mind up, as you said. Uh, it's in cinemas from today, The Little Mermaid. Uh, right, we're on to our final movie in a moment, and I cannot wait to talk about this. Sisu, we'll, uh, we'll let you know what we thought in just a second. Stay there. Hello and welcome back to the show. We have one more movie to look at. Uh, and I'm pleased to say this week, I managed to get a screening on this, thanks to Van. Uh, it's called Sisu. Um, I'm going to let you explain it, because you could probably do it better than I could anyway. But yeah, I'll, I'll give you my my two penneth in a moment. So, new movie from writer-director Yalmari Hellander, who directed Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale, which is a fantastic Norwegian Christmas horror movie uh, from many years ago, and a movie I'm very fond of called Big Game, which, if you don't remember, is where Samuel L. Jackson is the president, and he gets shot, Air Force One gets shot down in the woods, and yeah. a young boy who's you know doing a hunting rite of passage thing has to protect him. Yeah, <clears throat> okay. Um, that young boy... And I will. For, I'm going to tell you this for reasons. Um, was played by I think his name was uh, Oni Oni uh, Oni Talmari. I think his name was. Hang on, it's written down here. Oh, Oni Tamia Tamia Oni Tamia would play that boy in that movie. Now, the same writer and director of that movie is back. And he's directed this movie. It's called Sisu. And uh, we are told at the beginning of this movie. Hang on, I took a picture of it when, when we watched the, the screening link. I actually took a picture of what uh, of of what Sisu literally translated as. And Sisu is a Finnish word that cannot be translated. It means a white knuckled form of courage, an unimaginable determination. Now. That in and of itself is a pretty good description of what the plot of this movie is. I would like to sum it up as John Wick with Nazis. And this is set during the Lapland War, in which a, uh, a gold collector, a, a Finnish, gold, uh, Finnish gold prospector, sorry, is uh, in Lapland. He's, he, he wants nothing to do with the war. He has turned his back on the war. He's lost enough. He finds uh, you know, a hot spot of gold that he manages to, you know, he mines with a pickaxe. You know, just he and his dog in the wilderness with a pickaxe, chucks it all in his sack and sets off back home to you know, trade it in for his cash. Only to hack was obviously at this point in the Lapland War, the idea was that the Finnish go the Finnish government had made an agreement with the Russians that they would drive the Nazis out of Lapland, and in exchange there would be an accord that the Russians would you know there would be peace with the Russians. All they had to do was get rid. So the the, the, the Germans were being driven out, however most of them didn't want to go. And when uh, when one particular platoon happens upon our gold prospector, our seemingly insignificant gold prospector, they think, oh, well, a hopeless old man, a helpless old man, with a big sack full of gold. We'll have that. 
And, uh, well, they don't quite know who they've picked on. So I'm not going to tell you who he is. I'm going to let the clip do that for you. Here's the German platoon discovering exactly who it is they're messing with. He fought in the Winter War. He lost his home and his family to the Russians. He became a ruthless, vengeful soldier who took orders from no one. The Finns, they gave up trying to discipline or control him. They just sent him out, alone, into the wilderness to hunt Russian patrols. He became a one-man death squad. The reports are unconfirmed, but it looks like he has over 300 Russian kills. The Russians, they gave him a name. They call him Koshai, the Immortal. I'm going to ask you this question, Adam, because I watched yeah. this and then I texted you straight away with the screening link. Do I know what I'm talking about or what, sir? Absolutely incredible movie. I will say I was quite perplexed because I was watching this screening link through my PlayStation at which halfway through the movie, it decided to do an update. One hour and 56 minutes. I had to wait 24 hours to see the second half of this. And it is probably one of the only movies for a long time that I have really wanted to watch the whole thing in one go. But mm -hmm. I am glad I watched it. What a movie, right? I mean, I have not, I've not enjoyed an action movie this absolutely relentless mm. since you know which one I'm going to invoke now, The Raid. <laughs> so nine years since, nine years? Nine years, oh no, no, nine years since the sequel. So I think it's 11 years since The Raid, uh, which again, still the best action movie of the 21st century. This effortlessly walks onto my top 10 action movies ever. I think this is absolutely tremendous. Um, it's broken down into chapters which do feel like PlayStation level missions of sorts and oh my god you feel everything in this movie. Talk about immersive wonderfully captured brilliantly shot performance from Joma uh, Tamiya that Joma Tamiya who plays our uh, our immortal as we're told Koshai I love Koshai by the way because Koshai the immortal absolutely takes its place alongside Baba Yaga the boogeyman which is what they call John Wick as just these are great names for cinematic badasses and there's this is absolutely uncompromising for an action movie it's absolutely breathtaking it's absolutely fantastic you've got a great villain in axel henny as well who's the the commander i love axel henny anyway i think most mainstream audiences would know axel henny probably from the martian of all things i remember from, from uh headhunters uh years ago i think it was great in that movie headhunters with uh i'm just gonna say jamie lannister because i barely remember uh his name anymore um you, uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, uh, Oni Tomia I was in this movie. Oni Tomia, who plays one of the uh, the German soldiers, uh, plays one of the more prominent German soldiers, uh, is actually the son of the lead that they are hunting here in reality. And he was the young boy in the director's big game. This is just absolutely fantastic. If you are an action movie fan, you owe it to yourself on on a cellular level to see this movie. It's in English, as you can you can hear there. There's, I think there's like five minutes of subtitles at the end. 
uh, I've got to, I've got to pass it over to you. I mean, what did you love? What did you not love uh, about uh, uh, Sisu? Oh, the the effect absolutely outstanding yeah, to the point where you you actually I'm not going to give away too much because it's hard for me because I don't necessarily review movies I've seen before without giving away plots. So I've got to try hard here, but there <laughs> was you, a moment. Did you, did you think that they had actually? Because I I wondered if they'd actually just blown up sacks of meat. Yes. Well, I mean, it looked it looked real. That's all I'm going to yeah. say. I mean, there was that point where you said at this point in the movie, you're going to jump off of your sofa. And that's exactly what I did. I think I bit down all my nails watching this movie. It's like what I loved about it was there was never a moment where I picked my phone up. Now, that for me speaks volumes. I was completely just watching the screen with intent, wanting to know what's going to happen next. And, and uh, just brilliant. 10 out of 10 yeah. for me. It's worth noting is that I didn't give you a spoiler. I just said 21 minutes in. You're yeah, to, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. all you said, yeah. But, but uh, I mean, so good. I, yeah, how did you find... Because I, I thought the villain of this was just terrific. I loved Axel Henney as the bad guy. And there's so many wonderful just sequences. There was a sequence with a boat, for instance, that is just on next level. There's a, yeah. sequence, with, there's a sequence with a petrol station. That, uh, oh, Wow. Um, the, the, I mean, the, the, there's a certain fire that we see that you're just like, oh, 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 you, you, you shouldn't have done that. This is, this is going to get really bad now. Oh no, yeah, there's a lot of that. <laughs> there is, this, it's just literally got everything you possibly want if you're an action movie fan. Uh, and, and actually, without again giving away too much, this movie proved to me that it's not always what actors say. Sometimes it's what they don't say that can make a movie. Well, yes, because you've got a more or less mute hero, haven't you? In yeah. This? He, he, barely, he has like two lines of dialogue at the end of the movie. Like I, I'm convinced that those are his only lines of dialogue. Yeah, I think they were. Maybe, there might have been one line at the start somewhere, but apart from that, mm. he is completely silent. And you're almost, you're, your internal monologue watching this movie is almost filling in the gaps of what you think he's mm. thinking. And I think that's really clever. Absolutely. I, I say, if you uh, if if you love the uh, the white knuckle relentlessness of the raid or or the John Wick series, oh my God, you've got to see Sisu. It's on release from today. Please, please, please go and see this. Give it your give this your box office money. It has earned it. It deserves it. It's far and away one of if, if there is if there is if this doesn't make the ten best movies of this year. I will be shocked because it's it's already in my top 10 action movies of all time, as I say. I would definitely rate that one. Um, so, in cinemas from today. Uh, right. Next week, what have we got coming up? Reality is one of the movies that you're going to see. Yeah, Reality, new thriller starring Sidney Sweeney. I believe you get to watch that one uh, as well. We've got the new Curzon movie, Amanda, uh, next week. Uh, there's a documentary, Mad About the Boy, The Noel Coward Story, to come next week, which I'm looking forward to. I mean, I don't know an awful lot about Noel Coward himself. I know his works, uh, but I don't know much about the man himself, despite certain things that he did in World War II, which uh, you know, is one of my favourite ever uh, wartime stories. I think I've told you before about Roald Dahl, and what he got up to in World War Two, yes, uh, in Fleming, Noel Coward was part of that secret unit. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see if that comes up. Ooh, um, that would be interesting if it did. Yeah, yes, if it does, I'm going to be fascinated. Uh, all I'm going to say is look up the Irregulars. 
because it's it's I mean how it's not a movie I don't know. Um, we've got a new Stephen King adaptation next week, The Boogeyman, starring Chris Messina, based on this is a, this is a true story. My favorite work of Stephen King's. It's a short story that Stephen King wrote in one of his one of his collections, and I think it's the best thing Stephen King ever wrote. The Boogeyman. Uh, not quite the same story. They have changed it slightly, and I know that from the plot synopsis rather than having seen it. Uh, I'm seeing it Tuesday evening. Can't wait. But you know what I can't wait for more than anything? Oh, yes! Oh, God. I mean, talk about... There's, there's, anticipa- there's highly anticipated movies, and then there's this. The sequel to 2018's Best Animated Feature Winner at the Academy Awards. It's the sequel to Into the Spider-Verse. It's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. It is finally here. Apparently it's amazing and it's game-changing and we're all going to be blown away, but we're going to find out for ourselves next week. Looking forward to that. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We will, of course, be back next week. Until then, I've been Adam Ball. I've been Van Connor, and we shall return.